Hey, everybody, and welcome to Get Your AI On, the podcast. I'm Ciprian Borodescu, and this podcast is brought to you by Algolia, the AI-powered search and discovery platform. I'm the host of the show. In every episode, I invite founders, entrepreneurs, business leaders, and even AI researchers to share with us their experience in dealing with business problems that can be solved through intelligent use of data. Let's get your AI on. I'm here with Hakim Elakras, co-founder and CEO at NaniML. Hakim, it's an honor to have you on this podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks a lot, Supreen. I really appreciate it. Uh, you studied biology and bioinformatics for a long time, then worked as a data scientist and data engineer. And before NaniML, you started and grew an AI consultancy company. Tell us a bit about NaniML, how it came to be, and why should people care about it? Yeah, so basically, uh, it kind of started with that consulting background. So when, when we were doing consulting, uh, we were super passionate about getting models into production. Like we didn't want to take any projects in uh, innovation departments or that we knew would just end up as proof of concepts. We really had this like very uh, maybe stubborn focus to try and work on problems where the models would be getting out into the real world um, and having an impact on business. Yeah. And being stubborn uh, sometimes helps, huh? Yeah, <laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh, yeah, because it was like we, you know, we've been data scientists for a while. I mean, I mean, at least me speaking since at least 2014, which okay is not insanely long, but it's also not that long, uh, that old of a field, if you will. So I saw a lot of things, um, and I saw a lot of data science not making it out into the real world where it would actually add the most value. Um, and 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 it didn't necessarily mean that an organization had to be super advanced with their infrastructure either. Um, at some point, we built a neural network, um, so basically uh, an image processing model that we had built, and we bought a gaming desktop, um, wrote a command line interface around it, and deployed the model uh, to the desktop and delivered it to the client who had <laughs> no infrastructure whatsoever. <laughs> it was just like, oh, we wow. Yeah, yeah, and they never even did a machine learning project before. It was just a super lucky thing where they had one million images uh, before and after they were Photoshop um, and they wanted to reduce their time in Photoshop and they were super high quality images. And this at the time we were able to train a model that could basically fully um, uh, process like 60% of their images. So reducing their workload by 60%. Um, nice. And yeah, such a model didn't need crazy infrastructure. You can just deploy it on a gaming desktop that has a nice GPU, put a command line interface. They would literally walk over to their... Um, NAS storage, move the images, and then move them to the desktop and run it overnight. <laughs> and like that, that is a hacky way of putting machine learning in production, but it's better there than not having it at all. Like, and, um, but we kept getting the question of, okay, we know these models are trained on historical data. Um, we're putting them out into the real world uh, to do something or to make decisions. Um, how do we know that they're going to keep performing well? Um, and that was this question that we kind of got over and over again, um, and something that we became uh, passionate about over time. That's like that's true. Um, in this, you know, fully automated future that's coming, <laughs> a lot of it is going to be automated with machine learning. Um, 
And what happens when all those models are out there taking important decisions? Uh, and how do you know that those decisions are correct? And how do you know that your models are performing um, how you expect them to perform? And, and that's kind of what inspired NannyML to make sure that machine learning is doing what it's supposed to be doing. But at the same time, give people trust in machine learning so that we can accelerate the adoption um, of, of machine learning and machine and AI, if you will, uh, through all levels of society. When you were giving the, the previous example, I, I was thinking like, ah, uh, the romantic days of machine learning. Huh? <laughs> that's, uh, that's very interesting. I mean, you could still do that. <laughs> yeah, and it's super funny because, um, yeah, we were a small consultancy, didn't have access to a bunch of GPUs. We ended up buying um, an ex-Bitcoin miner that had oh, six no. 1080Is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It had six, uh, sorry, 12, 12 1080Is, uh, NVIDIA 1080Is, and we just, yeah, wrote some infrastructure code to parallelize the training, and just, it was cheaper to do that than, and it still is in many cases, than using the cloud to train these big models. <laughs> so it was super fun. Let's um, try to unpack it and kind of identify what are the main challenges you're solving for data scientists. Yeah, so... The main challenge, like, uh, so so basically you can break it down into two things. Uh, the main one is, what is my performance? Um, so how do I know what my model is doing and what the performance of the model is uh, when it's deployed into the real world? And then how do I, if the performance has changed, what caused that change and how do I fix it? So on one aspect, it's a monitoring uh, solution. And on the other aspect, it's like a time saving um, because... Mm -hmm. It's one thing to know the performance of your model. It's another thing to know why it degraded or why it changed and then being able to fix it as fast as possible. Um, so what we've seen in the past is that data scientists that have a lot of models in production, they do a lot of ad hoc analysis, uh, a lot of manual work to try and estimate their performance or to get any indication of how their models are performing. Um, and then a lot of work to do root cause analysis and identify the reasons why things have changed. Um, and basically what we're trying to do with NannyML um, is, number one, very simply tell you, your model is performing well, yes or no, and how is it performing basically? And then, okay, performance has changed. How, what what changed and what caused that change? What caused is a high, high is a strong word. I shouldn't use that as you know, as a data scientist, because we do not do causal machine learning yet. What is maybe correlated? What changes correlated with the change in performance <laughs> that might point you in a direction to help you solve the problem faster? And what I like about NannyML is the fact that it's open source, right? Yeah, indeed. Uh, we're totally open source. Uh, you know, as data scientists, we couldn't really see building a product any other way <laughs> without having a very big kind of open source component to it because our whole career is based on using open source tools, right? Um, I think I speak for most data scientists when I say that, you know, at least in my experience, that using proprietary software to do the core of your data science work um, is not so common. Uh, it's mostly, you know, scikit-learn, uh, PyTorch, uh, and these type of tools. Um, and so it was super important for us to have a core part of our product be open source and the basically the algorithms and how we go about doing things to be open source um, so data scientists can use NannyML uh, and, and basically like any other open source library and understand more importantly how it works and why it does the things it does. 
I know that this might seem like a simple question to you, but when's the right time for a company to start thinking of ML ops? And how would you approach that conversation with the executives of that company into convincing them to buy or build the ML ops solution? I think that's a very good question. I, I think there's a, it's an iterative approach. So I think the most important thing when working with machine learning um, is to kind of prove uh, as fast as possible that using uh, machine learning on the specific problem in your organization will add value. Um, and if it's the first time you're doing machine learning, I would argue that it's too early to think of MLOps because you don't know if you have the right data, if the model is going to actually solve the problem better than the current solution. You don't even know if machine learning is the right answer. So I think it's very important for data science teams, for their own continued existence within an organization, and also for the organization itself, to prove as fast as possible that whatever problem they're solving, that it should be solved with machine learning and that they have the right data. So at that point, I would think just some <laughs> Jupyter notebooks and building a benchmark model and just validating that this is valuable uh, is the best way to go. And it doesn't make sense um, to think about MLOps. I think even even to the point of putting the model in production, by the way, because if you look at like um, the story that I told um, in the beginning, that that company doesn't need MLOps. That was their only machine learning solution that they were using, the first and the only one for the time being. And so, you know, deploying in a command line on on a desktop on Linux uh, is all they need, and it works perfectly fine. Um, so I think we also shouldn't overcomplicate uh, our lives. But That's a good once one, you yeah. start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's like, you know, we also get into this thing where it's like, oh, everything has to be done in this framework or that framework. No, as long as, you know, it's as long as it's adding value. Uh, and and it also depends on the solution because, you know, something like an image model is quite stable. So you don't have to consistently be retraining it or making too many changes uh, unless there's huge changes in the input data. So that doesn't need much. Uh, that software is more like a normal traditional piece of software that you know, if you build it and it works, it will probably work forever, <laughs> to some degree, of course. <laughs> um, but I think when you really have to start thinking about MLOps is when you find yourself doing things um, a lot. So putting a lot of models in production, it's like putting, you know, um, having to monitor multiple models. So when things start to be really scalable, um, that's when you probably have to start planning it. And it also depends on the maturity of your organization. Like if you're a huge organization and you know from past experience that it ha you have to build this entire uh, you know, framework to get anything running, then yeah, maybe there you'll think about it from the beginning. But if you're maybe a smaller team or a smaller organization, um, I would focus first and foremost of getting value. And when you see yourself starting to do what we would call MLOps manually uh, lots of times, uh, that's maybe when I would sit down and start to plan it out. Uh, but again, everything with a grain of salt here and always depending on the organization side and whether it's actually possible to change the stuff after you start and how agile you are and those type of things, you know. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I, while you were giving this explanation, I, uh, I, I thought of uh, a book that I'm actually reading right now. It's called Empowered by Marty Kagan. Uh, the founder of Silicon Valley Product Group. And it's about product management and stuff. And he says something like, hey, focus on outcomes, not on outputs. And this, is, this point actually validates what you already said before. 
uh, you know, focusing first on figuring out even if AI is a solution for the particular problem that you want to solve. And if that's the case, go do a proof of concept first before, uh, I don't know, productizing everything, right? Yeah, 100%, 100%. Because when you start doing the proof of concept, you might start to realize, ooh, we don't have access to data we thought we would have or something. And this yeah. turned out to be a much bigger progress. Or, oh, uh, there's no way machine learning will become better than the human here. This doesn't make sense. So, oh, What do you mean? AI is not going to take over the world? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it will eventually. But you know, even Elon Musk, who's like super big proponent of uh, AI, uh, the, I think they he even admitted that they had went way too extreme in automating the Tesla factory. Um, uh-huh. And there was like a single thing where they had to move like a piece of carbon fiber fabric into some thing on top of the battery pack. And it would literally take a human like two seconds to do it, but it was too fragile for any sort of automation. And they spent like millions of euros <laughs> trying to automate it. And in the end they said, yeah, no, we're just going to put a person here <laughs> to do it. <laughs> and That's he even it. admitted that they went too far in the automation uh, for what technology they had available right now. This reminds me of another uh, story of NASA investing like $1 million or something like 20, 30 years ago or something like that to, to invent a, a pen that would work in zero gravity. Uh, and then the Russians came and they simply used the pencil. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> um, good. Well, um, let's talk a little bit about the top barriers or obstacles to overcome when it comes to building an AI organization. And since we're talking about that, I would also like to add here the question that I mentioned previously. How would a non-native AI company would go about building an AI culture? Let's see if we can bundle these two questions together. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. Um, So to be honest, there there is a lot of challenges, but I would say from what I've seen the most, um, and this could totally be biased by my experience and the things that I've seen, is that the biggest barrier to having uh, AI adoption in an organization is unfortunately, cultural and political (laughs) to the organization itself. So either this, there's an issue with the IT department and what they're allowing the data team to do. Uh, There's an issue with the business owners who own a specific business case. Um, I'll give you an example. I was talking to somebody recently um, in the insurance uh, sector, a data scientist in the insurance sector. And he was telling me like, look, man, I've been in insurance nine years. And I've barely ever gotten a data science model, uh, uh, basically a machine learning model into production. Um, And they were saying that, like, look, uh, actuarials, who are like the OG data scientists in the insurance industry that do all of the pricing models and everything, they hate us. (laughs) They they don't want anything to do with modern data science techniques. Uh, They don't think like they were the big guns around town. um, And now they don't really want to work with us. Why? Because Uh, they use Excel or something? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, no, they actually use quite complicated techniques, uh, regulated, of course, but they use quite sophisticated statistical techniques like GLMs, but they just, they just don't understand machine learning. They've been doing it. They've been doing it the way they've been doing it for a long time. Anything. They're worried that machine. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And they're also worried machine learning might take their jobs or data scientists will be the new standard. I don't know. So like, there's lots of political variable, surprisingly. Um, 
sometimes necessary, sometimes not, you know, of course, being technology people, sometimes just like throwing stuff out there in the real world, right? <laughs> and some in some industries or some enterprises, that actually is not the best thing to do. Um, but politics uh, and, and the human aspect of it tends to come up a lot. Um, and then the next thing I would say that tends to come up a lot is lack of data infrastructure. So not good data quality, not good data, not data in the first place, like not having the data you need for a specific use case in, in the beginning um, and not having the whole kind of data engineering system uh, set up to easily get data to the data analysts and data scientists. Hey, um, Hakim, I was actually thinking when you were mentioning about that, man, we should really consider data to be actually good data, qualitative data. The other data is not garbage data. It's almost like talking about matter in antimatter. It's like probably <laughs> anti-data, huh? Anti-data. I like that. <laughs> I like that concept. We should indeed introduce that. It's indeed anti-data. I totally agree. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's so so those two things, like the people politics and the data engineering, it's funny because those are not problems. Like those aren't data science problems, funny enough, right? Like, but um yeah, yeah, they they, mm -hmm. they tend to be some of the biggest issues in being uh, or adopting AI uh, in an organization. Um, and I've also seen uh, uh, situations where uh, the leadership of the company thinks that or has the impression that if you do that single first proof of concept, that absolutely needs to be a positive one. Whereas the definition of a proof of concept is that you might have good results or not. And it's an iterative process, like you said. You can follow up with the second proof of concept and so on and so forth. You have to discover something. Not that first experiment might yield zero results, right? So this yeah, doesn't mean true. that you have to stop there. Yeah, and maybe it's just not the right use case, right? Um, it, just because one use case didn't show value doesn't mean that there's not another use case in the organization that might um, so show value, right? Exactly. Um, maybe maybe something uh, this is interesting from my side that like I actually think AI has gotten to uh, like everything is AI now, right? Like everything when it's actually quite a nuanced uh, field. Like we used to have this term predictive analytics. Uh, at, I don't know if you remember there yeah, but for some yeah. reason yeah we don't use it anymore but in reality there's a very very big difference between like a forecasting model and a model that automates something like image processing or some other part of a bigger software system like those are very different use cases of machine learning that have very different needs in mlops and in monitoring and in like they're just totally different things and it's kind of funny that some automation component and forecasting the future uh, and sharing that with business is all considered AI. I, I find that hilarious, actually. You know how it goes. I uh, When you want to talk marketing, you say AI. When you talk about <laughs> the, the rest of the nuances in terminology, uh, you know, you, you only talk about that when you are in an uh, engineering yeah. setting. Yeah, that's that's that brings me to the joke. Like, you know what they say: uh, machine learning is written in Python, and AI is written in PowerPoint. There we go. Excellent, excellent. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so, are we in agreement that is uh, that AI is really not for everyone? 
Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think eventually it will be, to be honest. <laughs> uh, but I think the difference is the, the timeline. Like, and also how it's used, right? Like, I think every organization, we all, AI is already everywhere, right? Just because your company builds it itself or not doesn't mean it's not there, right? Like, every kind of, uh, the recommendation engines you're using on LinkedIn or whatever, like, you know, uh, I think all companies will end up using some sort of AI-enabled software. Uh, whether they build it themselves, that's a totally different question. And I think a large amount of companies, uh, definitely like, say, Fortune 500, will be using um, AI and machine learning for a lot of things, like across multiple departments. So I think it just depends on the scale of your organization. I think the bigger you get, the more likely you are to basically eventually become an AI company. Um, and then the smaller you are, the more likely you are going to be to consume products that have AI as part of their core uh, software. It's interesting that when internet uh, was invented and introduced mainstream like 1990s and some, the 90s, uh, a lot of the companies migrated or have been transformed into technical companies, tech companies, right? Uh, years and years ago, you would say like, hey, you are now becoming a tech company. Every company is a tech company. I think we are yeah. moving into a, uh, an area where uh, you're becoming an AI company, right? That's the next transformation, I guess. Yeah, but I, I also think that AI and software will merge. <laughs> so I think that um, I think that it's hard to give an example, but it's definitely happened in the past. But like, I think that in the future it will be the same. <laughs> I don't know. Like right now, you see it a lot in Silicon Valley. In Europe, you still really have this like designated data scientist title. But if you actually look at um, people who work at like hot startups in the Valley and you look at their LinkedIn, the most often title you'll see is software engineer. And then you go look at what they describe their job is. And it's like, oh, that's a data scientist. <laughs> so I actually think that like data science will get more and more embedded in what we call like traditional uh, software engineering. What level of importance have you seen given to ethics in AI teams or organizations? At which point does it become a priority? When, when does it make sense in a roadmap? Uh, that's, that's a good question. Uh, the very sad answer to that is uh, uh, often not. Um, it should become a priority when you have a machine learning model. I mean, for sure, when there's a machine learning model that's dealing directly with people. Um, so anything related to recruitment, uh, credit scoring, um, basically when customers, uh, when you're making any decision on people, uh, ethics should be top of mind. Not only because, I mean, of ethical reasons and being good people, um, but also from a business perspective. And I, I don't want to be the guy that tries to sell ethics from a business perspective because you, sh you know, being ethical should be good enough, right? <laughs> it, you don't have to make money. You shouldn't have to have to make money to be ethical. But when you think about it, um, if, for instance, uh, a certain segment of your population is underrepresented in your data, so your model uh, is biased towards them, or no, the model's not being biased towards them, but you know, the outcomes of the models are biased towards them. Um, that's bad for business, right? Like it's saying that you don't have enough data 
to make a decision about this segment of the population. Um, so if you want to make more money, you better be getting better at making decisions for that population. And depending on what you define as a better decision, um, as long as your metrics are defined properly, then normally the better decision will be also the ethical decision, right? Um, not always, but normally. Um, so it's it's not only like a being a good person and a, a good and ethical company. There's also, you know, pretty pretty strong financial consequences for for not being ethical. Um, of course, it depends on the use case. I'm sure there's use cases where being unethical pays, but like, <laughs> you know, that, that's that's a different conversation. But I think for sure, whenever you're dealing with people, uh, you have to take the ethics extremely seriously. When you're dealing with, like, you know, um, the the image model I was talking about earlier, that was like car parts. Like, you don't need to think about ethics when talking about car parts. Like, there there is nothing in that ML system that can potentially be unethical, right? It's again a bit like the ML ops. You have to be taking a balanced approach and think kind of logically, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, but yeah, unfortunately, I wish it was taken into account more. Um, at Nanny ML, we don't explicitly take it into account just yet in our product. Uh, we have a very strong form in, uh, uh, focus on performance and making sure that your AI is performing well. Um, and we leave what performing well means uh, to be defined uh, by the data scientists who are using our product. So if their performing well is an ethical performing well, then Nanny ML ensures that the model keeps being ethical. If it's not included, then unfortunately not. But that's something that we definitely think about uh, for the future of the product roadmap. It just hasn't been um, a main focus right now. Yep, makes sense. I was actually thinking that, you know how um, medics, doctors have that Hippocratic oath? Uh, maybe something like that should be introduced also for software engineers. Uh, working with sensitive data, building sensitive machine learning models, and so on, and AI systems in general. I think developers also, and engineers in general, have a responsibility or should have some ethical responsibility um, shared with the leaders, uh, leadership of the company or management, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, I think for sure, and it's something that should be taught when people are studying and embedded much more culturally. Um, I also think it's important to take just good precautions in data privacy um, and in uh, watching that, watching out for stuff like that when building models, because, you know, the issue is sometimes you don't know, right? Like it's, if a model is unethical, it's not always maliciously unethical, right? Um, because if you take the example at Google, um, was it Google? Yeah, where the image searches, um, are quite biased, actually. Like, if you Google monkeys, you sometimes get images of African-Americans, which is super messed up. I don't think that was um, explicitly unethical. And that's a problem, right? Because the software engineer, the data scientist who built that could have taken such an oath, but they just didn't think of that data being in their trading, you know, data. It was and not it, intentional. Exactly. Especially in those really big models with, like, millions and millions and millions of examples in the data like you would have to think of every single I mean, okay, every single edge case and essentially think about manually filtering them out right so um it's not always a question of the intention of the developer so an oath like that might not actually help with a lot of these cases it, it will come down to having some processes or some something else you know um because 
at the end of the day, uh, developers are people. And yeah. if something is outside of their own life experience, it's very hard to, th- to get them to think about it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, uh, that's actually, that actually introduces an interesting point. The fact that um, you have to have bad intentions to actually make the well piece of software uh, not necessarily AI um, unethical. As long as those intentions, bad intentions are not there, then I guess you are in the clear from that point of view. From that point of view, I mean, of course you yeah. still, yeah, it's yeah. very hard, right? Like, yeah. uh, of course you know the example of Tay, the Microsoft, uh, oh yeah, Twitter bot, uh, and that was reinforcement learning. Like, there was literally nothing that the developer could do. Like, at the end of the day, it was a reinforcement learning, uh, which means that it just learns on its own based on the input it's getting. Um, so, yeah, like, there's not much you can do in that scenario other than not release such models at all, right? So. Also with like these uh, generative models like OpenAI, GPT-3, like, oh, they were super secretive about their models. They don't want to give everyone access to it because of uh, ethics and things, right? Uh, then comes along, uh, what was that new one? Uh, Diffusion uh, that just came out, which is basically uh, an open source model that's better than uh, than the OpenAI DALI model. Uh, and now it's out there in the wild. And so... I also have that philosophy a bit, uh, not just because NannyML is an open source company, but uh, there's only so much you can hide uh, from the world, right? Like once OpenAI released a model that can generate those images with just a caption, then the world knows it's possible. And it's just a matter of time uh, before someone makes an open source version of it, right? Like you're not protecting the world by keeping it behind the walls garden. So I found that a very interesting approach. Uh, and now we see that there's this... Um, stable diffusion that's out that's like super cool uh even better than dolly um and totally open source the question that i would have here is like how how do you challenge ai teams to build better ai products um of course any ml is at the core of that uh, but what kind of other metrics of success for ai teams have you seen out there and how are those different if they are different from you know classical software engineer teams, I guess? Uh, it's definitely different from classical software engineering. I think there's two things to take into account. Um, the first is business impact. So you really have to measure um, what is the business impact of your model, and then the technical metrics that you pick are just a proxy of the business impact. Um, so for example, uh, you, you together with the business team have to decide what does success mean uh, for this model. So uh, a credit scoring model might be keeping the default rate below 5%, right? Um, and then you as the data scientist have to figure out what technical metric you need to optimize to achieve that business metric. Um, so that's one thing is to that the business benchmark or the business metric has to be defined ahead of time. And then you have to basically experiment and understand what technical metrics uh, you need to achieve to achieve that business benchmark. Uh, I, I don't think that many teams do it like that. Um, and that's that's quite different than traditional software engineering, I think. Then the other thing is, what is better? Um, because there's a lot of people who say like, ah, oh, yeah, AI can't make mistakes. It has to be perfect. But in my opinion, a question that is seldomly asked is, what is the performance of the current system? <laughs> so imagine you have a credit scoring model 
um, and it's humans who are approving the credit applications. What is the performance of that system? How biased is that system? How good is that system? Um, and then, actually, as soon as your AI is better than the current system, it's worth deploying. It doesn't have to be perfect. It should just be better than what's already there to a point that it's cost-effective to replace what system is currently there. And I think those are two things. If you look at the business impact benchmarks and the question of when does it make sense to actually replace whatever the current system is with AI, I think they're not thought of enough by data science teams. Um, and I think if you think of those questions before you start your project, uh, you're going to be much more likely on a path to success. And why do you think data scientists are not really focused on that or asking those questions themselves? Um, yeah. Not all of them. <laughs> Some of them definitely do. I, I, I think it's just, uh, it's one of those things that you can't really teach with education, right? Because when you go study data science, you learn that to have a good uh, machine learning model, you need a rock AUC oh, yeah. of 0.9, right? <laughs> like, that's what you learn. That's what you learn in school. That's what you learn when you study. That's what you learn when you do all boot camps. But the real world is a lot messier than that, right? Because maybe if you measured the existing system, the rock AUC would be point, you know, 0.3. And then the actual the machine learning model you build that has a rock AUC of 0.4, oh, man, get rid of the existing system immediately. But by an academic standard, that would be considered a quote-unquote bad model. Um, so I think a part of it is the education, is that like whenever you do education, all of what is given as an example for a good model is just extremely high technical metrics, uh, when the real world is not like that at all. Uh, the real world is a cost-benefit analysis to what's already existing versus what the model can do. And for the model to be better than what's already existing, you might not need to have a perfect model. You might not even need to have what academics would consider a good model, yeah. right? Uh, and it can still be more cost-effective. So I think it comes down to education and the nature of how we learn data science, actually. Real-life data science. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, cool, Hakim. So I, we are nearing towards the end of this episode. Uh, and I like to surprise my listeners with a special question of the episode one that has more weight to it and it's a bit more delicate to answer and the catch is that you get to ask the question and our dear listeners you are invited to think about it reflect on it and answer it by commenting on LinkedIn, youtube or twitter in doing so one of you can win a book on ai so hakim what is your question or challenge for our listeners um it's a question. So I would, I would want to hear what's the biggest challenges um, that you see while implementing AI in your organization. Uh, and maybe that's a bit more sensitive because uh, people don't want to admit that it's cultural <laughs> or, or some sort of political motive. But I'm curious to see uh, here if what I said today resonated with anyone or that they face totally different problems while uh, implementing AI across their organization. And I I'm super interested in hearing all the responses uh, on YouTube and LinkedIn. Awesome. Hakim, it was a pleasure to have you on this podcast. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with me and with us. How can people reach out to you for ideas and comments? Yeah, so I'm super active on LinkedIn, like uh, super active. So message me there, happy to answer any questions. Um, if you have more general questions about NaniML or anything like that, feel free to drop into our Slack. 
uh, check out our GitHub. Uh, like Cyprian mentioned, it's all open source. So happy happy to help with anything uh, related to that. And you also have a newsletter on LinkedIn, right? I do have a newsletter on LinkedIn. Oh, I should be sh- I should be shilling things a bit more. Yes, we have a newsletter. Uh, it's it's I try to publish it every two weeks. Um, it's not shilling our product uh, most of the time. It's normally I'm gathering all the news from the MLOps and post-deployment data science world from the best influencers, Reddit, uh, and everything like that, and then putting a little bit of my spin on it or giving my opinion on it. Um, and indeed, that's on uh, LinkedIn, so you can go subscribe there. Absolutely. That's a very good resource, and I encourage everyone to follow that. Hakim, thank you so much, man. Yeah, thanks a lot, Sabrina. It was great being here. All right. This was Get Your AI On Podcast. Thank you all for listening, and be sure to subscribe. We're going to post a new episode every other week, so stay tuned for the next conversation. See you next time.